pillars of creation in a brand new light. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The pillars of creation image captured by the Hubble Space Telescope has captivated space fans for decades. Now, we're getting a fresh look at this cosmic nursery thanks to the James Webb Space Telescope. We'll hear from an observational astrophysicist about the stunning new set of images and how JWST will continue to blow our cosmic minds. Then, from the birth to midlife crisis, how can you tell the age of stars? Turns out, it's really difficult. But researchers at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University are hoping to shed some light on a star's age by watching how fast they spin. Uncovering our cosmic history, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. The Pillars of Creation are one of my favorite astronomical images. The pictures returned from Hubble remained my desktop wallpaper until JWST started beaming back its incredible images. The telescope team at JWST released two stunning images of these cosmic plumes of gas that act as a star nursery. To talk more about the images and why this location in the sky is so interesting to scientists is Eric Perlman. He's a professor at Florida Tech here in Melbourne, Florida. Eric, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Pillars of Creation is one of my favorite images uh, from the Hubble days. So oh, yeah. imagine my excitement when we get to see what JWST um, shared with us. But before we get into just how brilliant this image is, let's talk about the significance of the pillars themselves. What are we looking at? What are the Pillars of Creation? So what the Pillars of Creation are is it's it's a region of space, a region, uh, a gas cloud uh, where stars are being born. And so we are looking at a gas cloud like the one where our sun was born four and a half billion years ago. And these are new stars that are being born. Some of them could have life. Some of them are going to have planets around them. And so this is a way to look at the conditions that that gave rise to our sun and our our solar system. Mm -hmm. And they're massive, right? I mean, give me a sense of scale as to how large these things are. Yeah, so uh, the, the, the picture that you're looking at, this is a region several light years in size. And so those pillars are light years long, and they are, they, we're not just looking at uh, single stars that are being born, right? We are looking at thousands of stars that are being born just in that little image. And so that's that's the other thing, right? It is this large region of space. It's, it's many, many different stars of all different masses. And, and like I said, this, the, this, is a, this is a gas cloud like the one that gave rise to our sun, right? We are looking at the conditions where our sun was born, except now, of course, four and a half billion years later. But that's but but that's something that's important to understand because uh, we want to understand 
how stars like our own sun come into being, what conditions create them, and uh, what physics affects them. I mean, that was the whole point of JWST, right, is to kind of look back in time and, and take a look at the history of our universe. So this is this is the baby book, right? I mean, we are we are looking at the infancy of stars, right? I mean, this is this is really incredible. That that's exactly right. We're looking at the at, at the baby book of stars. We're also looking at the baby book of planetary systems as well, uh, because that's the other thing. You know, some of these stars, they're being born with planets around them. And in fact, close-ups of some of them show disks, right? These disks are where planets like our own, planetary systems like our own, are born. Um, this is absolutely, um, you know, it, it's the baby book, as you said. It really is. This is looking at it fairly close to home, too, right? You know, this, as opposed to some of the other work that Webb is looking at, right? Many of those other places are in other galaxies that are billions of light years away. This isn't, right? This is in our own galaxy. This is just a few thousand light years away. And so we get a much closer up view of it. Let's talk about the image itself. We first got to look at- and, 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 and really we should talk about two images. Yes, yes. Because um, that that's right, because there is, there is the near cam image and then there is also the miri image and they're they're different right and they show us one is different sides. one is very spooky i know <laughs> i know and, and 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 in fact so while we were transitioning to that i just i just brought it up on on my computer just now because that's one of the things that I, I, I used yesterday to do is that I uh, create for myself a little slide deck of these, which I needed for other things anyway, <laughs> for, a, for a presentation I'm giving next week. But so I'm, I'm looking at it right now. It is spooky, although it, 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 it you know, this is partly due to the color table that they use to present <laughs> it, of course. Well, b yeah. before we get to the spooky image and then and then the image that was that was released a few weeks ago, let's let's go all the way back to 1995 when Hubble captured the the first image of this. I mean, mm -hmm. this was really cool for you know pop culture and and you know people who were just excited about space because it was this brilliant image. Um, what was Hubble seeing, and how was Hubble seeing that, and what makes the JWST images that were released recently so different and and, and more exciting? Right. And so what, what Hubble was seeing is that Hubble was seeing not only some of the stars, but these immense pillars of, of gas and dust. Uh, and many of them were so thick that um, light from the stars that were in back of them could just barely peek through. And um, that actually is a great way to segue into what's so different about what Webb sees. Uh, what JWST sees uh, is you still see the dust and the gas, but it's obscuring much, much less light. And so you see so many more stars. You know, the stars are a lot fainter, of course, because Webb is so much more sensitive than Hubble is. 
So this is the other thing, right? So the stars that we were seeing with the Hubble image were A, the stars that were not obscured, and B, they were the most massive stars, which means that they weren't stars like our sun, right? They were several times more massive than our own sun. Now the stars that we're seeing are, it's it's the whole gamut, right? It's it's all of the stars everywhere in the cloud and it's stars like our own sun and even down to lower masses so it's a much more complete view um so that's the first thing and then the second thing is so these really dense uh pillars of dust now what we see is that we you know not only can we see through them, but they have all kinds of really interesting structure in them, right? And there are plumes and there are regions where something is blowing it out. And there are a whole lot of things. And it's telling us some interesting things about how stars are born and how they affect the environment that they're born in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's also like existential and, crisis inducing, isn't it? <laughs> See all of these it kind of is, yeah. <laughs> it kind of is. <laughs> it's wild. Um, it is. <laughs> like, I'm looking at it now and I'm like, wow, I, like, I am so insignificant, aren't I? <laughs> I know, yeah. I know. And, 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 and you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And... You know, there there is so much about it that I don't know if I would call it existential crisis just so much as, um, you know, it, it's kind of the thing that you, you know how astronauts have the um, this new vision of what what life is like when they first go into space. I haven't been in space, but this is the kind of thing that I get when I look at images like this one, it's, it, it just completely changes uh, your view of what it is you think the universe is like. It really the, does. The overview effect. The overview effect, right? exactly. <laughs> exactly. You mentioned this is kind of the cosmic nursery. This is how stars are born. And these images, both from what we've seen in Hubble and especially the data that we're getting back from JWST is giving us a better understanding of, of how, how stars are born. What is the process as we know it now? What is happening inside these pillars? Right, right. So what is happening is that... so. The regions of gas within these pillars that are a little bit denser, they collapse, right? Because they have, they have more matter and gravity makes them start to collapse. And as they collapse, they heat up and they begin to form stars, okay? And also about 50% of the time, give or take, uh, more than one star is formed, okay? So most stars are born in multiple systems right so so our sun is not necessarily the typical star right because our sun doesn't have a companion it's actually a little bit more common to have a system like alpha centauri which has two or three stars um it's about 50 55 percent of stars that are born 
in multiple systems. And uh, also one of the things that happens is that, you know, you have the gas cloud collapsing. Sometimes it fragments before it gives birth to stars, right? And sometimes when it fragments, individual stars and multiple star systems uh, evolve in those fragments. So it's, it's a whole process. And if you look at, uh, at the pillars, one of the things that you might want to ask yourself is, okay, where is it that stars are being born right now? Well, I would answer that by saying, if I had to make a prediction, I would look at the regions where the gas and the dust is most dense. Okay? Well, where is that in this image? Uh, if I looked only at the Hubble image, I couldn't answer that question because there are these huge regions in the pillars which are just completely opaque. And it's going to be somewhere in there, but that's half the image. And so that's kind of the most unsatisfying answer that I could possibly give, right? Now, if I look at the JWST image, now I have a much better idea because I can look at the gas that's in the pillars and there's real variation in how thick that gas and dust is. And I can actually point at regions that are denser and regions that are less dense. And it's those really, really dense regions that are cold. These are the regions that are collapsing right now to form stars. And we're watching it happen. We're watching it happen. Exactly. It enables us to actually make that much more real. Okay. As, as opposed to saying half the image. Now I'm saying, oh, there and there and there and there. And this is only after we've been, you know, a half of year or half a year seeing data come down from from this thing. I mean, I, I think it's just incredible exactly. everything that we're learning from JWST. And I'm glad we have someone like you to, to break it down for us. Eric Perlman is a professor at the Florida <laughs> Institute of Technology's Physics and Space Science Department. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Stay listening. Eric plans to join the program regularly to talk about JWST's images. Have a favorite you'd like to discuss? Well, let me know. Send us an email, yet at wmfe.org. Still to come, uncovering the age of stars is harder than it sounds inside the efforts to date stars. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. How can you tell the age of stars? Turns out it's really difficult, but researchers at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University are hoping to shed some light on a star's age by watching how fast they spin. Last year, I virtually visited the observatory at Embry-Riddle to speak with professor and associate dean Terry Oswalt about the technique for dating a star and how searching the night sky for double star systems could hold the key to determining their age. Well, actually, not just me, but Dr. Otani and Dr. Von Hippel were involved in this project, too. Uh, we're doing 
uh, research in an area that's called gyrochronology. Gyro Which is the coolest word. Oh, yeah. Like that's what that's what piqued my interest. Gyrochronology. We're scientists, we make stuff up. <laughs> gyro means to rotate or to spin, and chronology means age or time. And like Hollywood actors, stars just don't like to give up their ages. <laughs> it's one of the most hard things you can ask an, a, a, an astronomer is how old is that star? It, there are a few ways to do it, and none of them are very accurate. But like people, stars slow down as they age. And what we're trying to do, Dr. Otani and Dr. Von Hippel and I and some colleagues at other universities are, are trying to gauge what the relationship between a star's activity, like sunspots, the sun's coming up into the active phase of its 11 year cycle, even as we speak. Um, but that activity is driven by rotation. Rotation in an object like the sun or another star excites the spot activity and the flares and the explosions and, and emissions of plasma that we call space weather here in the solar system. And what we're trying to do is to figure out, we're trying to put some marks, some actual numbers on the time it takes a star to wind down. Stars are throwing away material in what's called a stellar, in the case of the sun, a solar wind. That's what space weather is all about. And that's a whole, mm -hmm. another program right there is talking about space weather. And that matter is being thrown away. And the magnetic field of the sun is also reaching out and interacting with the interstellar medium. And both of those represent a sort of friction, a slowing down of the earth, of the sun's rotation rate over time but try to put a calendar on that rate of slowing. That's where this project comes in. And what we're trying to do is to mm -hmm. test about a half a dozen different numerical theories that people have published about what causes stars to slow down and how fast they slow down and what age you can tack onto them at a given rotation rate. For example, the sun is four and a half billion years old and it's a, and its rotation rate is about a month, which is fairly typical for a sun-like star. Mm -hmm. But is that true for all sun-like stars? There appears to be some exceptions. How about a lower mass star or a much larger mass star? The relationship isn't perfect. And so what we're trying to do, and, and the, the uniqueness of the project we're working on um, uses the Kepler data which was a one meter telescope that for almost four years stared at one spot in the sky. Searching for exoplanets, searching right? for exoplanets. But when you're looking for the tiny little dimming that a planet causes when it passes in front of its star, that's pretty much a similar effect when a star has spots on it and it's rotating. When the spot comes into view, the star dims a little bit. Hmm. The same techniques can be used to, to look for the rotation period of a star, which is nothing but a point of light in the sky, but it winks at you slightly, a few parts per million typically when mm -hmm. a planet passes in front of it or when a spot comes around. And so if you see the repetitive dips caused by the star spots, that gives away its rotation rate. Now all you need to do is to figure out how to get an age on it. Mm -hmm. There are several ways. Maybe I'll ask uh, Dr. Von Hippel uh, uh, if he's on to talk a little bit about how we get ages using clusters of stars. 
Uh, Ted, you want to say a few words about how you get gauges of clusters? Sure. Um, yeah, so as Terry was mentioning, ages are one of the most important and difficult things to get for stars. I like to rewind back to something that we're all familiar with, which is Darwin's theory of evolution. Darwin didn't make this leap into thinking about deep time and therefore evolution, a very slow change, until he was influenced by Lyell and other geologists who at the time were saying the earth was hundreds of millions of years old based on what they were seeing. So there's some sense of deep time that has to come outside of biology to get that context for biology. And likewise, that sense of deep time from geology influenced astronomy and the astronomers and physicists at the time knew the sun couldn't just be a pile of wood or coal on fire. Um, so we have a couple different techniques to get a calibration for this gyrochronology. And one of them is what mass star is just now stopping to burn hydrogen in the center and on its way to becoming a red giant. And that can be determined in an open cluster. And another technique, I work on that technique, but another technique I also work on is that white dwarfs, the very late stages of the star, the white dwarf is just the hot ember that used to be the core of a star. And it will cool with time because there's no more power source. So it's sort of like a rock left by a campfire. After the campfire has gone out, you can tell how long ago the campfire went out by how warm that rock is. Hmm. Um, I work on both of those and we're trying to use those to calibrate um, the technique that Terry's talking about, the gyrochronology. Mm -hmm. uh, go ahead. I, I was gonna ask, to, to go back to your analogy of, of, of Hollywood stars aging, 4.5 billion years old for, for our, our own star. Yeah. Is it at the start of its career? Is it, is it nearing retirement? Where, where well, are there, we? there are half a dozen different ways to prove this, but the simplest one is to take E equals MC squared and, and the sun's energy output right now, which would be E divided mm -hmm. by time. And you can work out with the mass of the sun how long it would last if it turned all of its mass into energy. And that turns out to be tens of billions of years. That's so we're good. We're, we're fine. So we're good. Okay. If you do a little more rigorous calculation, it turns out the sun will last for maybe 10 billion years. And it's 4.5 billion years approximately old. So it's middle-aged. Mm -hmm. um, it's got a good run coming ahead of it. But I, had, I hate to give you the bad news, but in about a billion years, global warming will become a serious problem because the sun's gradual gradually turning into a red giant and it will bake us. <laughs> well, we, at least we have some time. We have some time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we, there's, there's a few techniques to kind of, to, to, you know, look at this, look at the sun as, as if it's a, a, a ember in a campfire or, or look at the stars if it's an ember in a campfire to, to age it. Uh, what, what other ways can, can, you know, researchers and scientists like yourself really nail down how old these stars are? Well, the, the, the ways that Ted just outlined are, are pretty common, but rarely get better than a, uh, than a 10 or 20% precision, although the white dwarf ages are pretty good. Um, that happens to be an area that several of us are interested in. Um, the ages of, of what we're trying to do in our project is to use the very, very high precision measurements of brightness that Kepler provided over a four-year period for one spot in the sky, but many millions of stars were in that image that was repeatedly taken for, for four and a half, four years. 
and the follow-on uh, multiple year extended Kepler K2 mission, which retargeted several other places in the sky, about two dozen other places in the sky, and the current NASA transiting Earth uh, survey satellite, TESS for short, mm-hmm. which is looking for near-Earth planets, exoplanets. Uh, Kepler was most sensitive to very distant exoplanets. TESS is specifically looking for planets nearby the sun around bright stars, many of which are bright enough to be seen with the naked eye. All three of those missions have many hundreds of thousands, actually many millions of stars whose light curves, that's the string of data, brightness versus time over however many months or years each mission lasted, um, for stars to parts per million in precision. So we're looking through those those archives, if you will, and the incoming data for the the signatures of spots and rotation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Angle, we've taken on this, and I don't want to draw this one subject out too far because we've got dozens of other topics that people are probably more interested in, is that we're specifically, our group is specifically looking at pairs of stars. Most stars have at least one companion. Our sun seems to be unusual in that it's a loner. Which I find the most fascinating thing. This is something I learned producing the show is that a binary star system is not uncommon, right? Norm, something yeah. like two thirds of all stars, certainly well over half anyway, mm-hmm. are binaries and many others are triples or quadruples or multiples. Uh, the second star on the handle of the Big Dipper, just the one, one in from the end is a, a visual binary. You can see both stars with the naked eye if you've got 20-20 vision. Anyway, long story short, take two stars. They're the same age. They were born together. They must have the same age, okay? Their rotation rates should give you the same age if gyrochronology works. And so what we're trying to do is to use these pairs of stars. And oh, by the way, we have uh, something like a million binaries now to work on out of, out of these three missions. Um, we're trying to see what theory of the half a dozen or so explains the rotation versus age paradigm works best. So we're putting them to the test. Every binary ought to show the same, two, the, the, each pair of stars ought to have the same age mm-hmm. if gyro models are correct. So mm-hmm. we're putting theory to the test. That's, that's the important half of the scientific method. You make a hypothesis you go out and find data that will test that hypothesis and gradually out comes a theory, a mathematical model that actually explains what will happen in the future. That was Embry-Riddle Associate Dean Terry Oswald. That conversation aired in May 2021. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org slash space. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Beatrice Oliveira. Beatrice, welcome back to the show. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.